good morning, and welcome to the Palcast, the podcast from the White Coat Underground. My name is Peter Lipson. I am an internist in the Midwestern United States. I have a blog called The White Coat Underground at scienceblogs.com slash whitecoatunderground, and I also write for the blog sciencebasedmedicine.com. This is the second Palcast since my computer has been fixed, and the last one had a few audio problems. I will try to make sure that this one does not, but if it does, I figure that's just part of the homey nature of it all. There was so much interesting healthcare news this week. The healthcare blogosphere was abuzz with news of Senator Tom Harkin's hearings on healthcare reform. You see, Senator Harkin was the legislative force behind the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine, or NCAM. NCAM is described on its website as, quote, the federal government's lead agency for scientific research on the diverse medical and healthcare systems, practices, and products that are not generally considered part of conventional medicine, end quote. As any of my readers are sure to know, I find this entire statement somewhat puzzling, as medicine is comprised of practices that work and those that don't. Once a practice has been validated, it is medicine. It's not alternative to anything. If a practice is invalidated, it should no longer be called an alternative to anything. It should be thrown in the dustbin. Be that as it may, Senator Harkin is a little bit upset. He's upset that the agency has not validated more so-called alternative practices. To quote Senator Harkin, quote, One of the purposes of this center was to investigate and validate alternative approaches. Quite frankly, I must say publicly that it has fallen short. I think, quite frankly, that in this center and in the office previously before it, most of its focus has been on disproving things rather than seeking out and approving. Close quote. That is, of course, a smoking gun quote. It is very clear to anybody who has ever practiced or studied science that nothing about that quote shows any vague understanding of science. In fact, the language of it reminds me of nothing so much as the creationist cultists and others who make a conclusion and then try to twist reality to fit their beliefs. One of the testaments to the intelligence and ethics of the scientists who have worked for NCAM is that at least some of them clearly have been real scientists. They have bothered to report their negative results of such things as echinacea for colds, ginkgo for Alzheimer's, and all other sorts of invalidated so-called alternative practices. The fact that they have failed to validate Senator Harkin's little belief system should be of no concern to anyone other than Senator Harkin. I'm not so naive to think that politics will never affect science or healthcare. Anytime science is funded by any sort of outside source, be it a government agency or a pharmaceutical agency, there will be inevitable conflicts of interest, and hopefully the ethics of the scientists involved will overcome most of that. However, when you see an Orwellian statement like this from Senator Harkin, it's very disturbing. 
especially in times like this, where the economy is absolutely in the shitter, and where there is a broad mandate for health care reform, the thought of someone like Senator Harkin having an influence over this process is downright frightening. What about researchers who take funds from NCAM? What are they to make of Senator Harkin's comments? Is this an explicit threat? Is this an announcement of, find the conclusions I want you to find or lose the money? I think it's clear when there's a senator who holds the purse strings of an agency and when he makes a statement like this, that this sort of threat is very clearly implied. But as long as we're touching peripherally on the topic, let's wade right into the thick of it. The economy sucks. And for any of you who haven't noticed, this has a very real-world impact. Here in the Rust Belt, the impact has been especially severe. I've been treating a great deal of depression this winter, and many of my patients have lost their jobs, lost their homes, lost their health insurance, and there aren't a lot of alternatives out there. Among some of the more disturbing developments I've seen are women with children who are completely stuck in very abusive relationships because economically they have nowhere else to go. Even the shelters are suffering. I've seen people putting off essential medical procedures because of large out-of-pocket expenses. I've seen people cutting pills in half or skipping days on medication to stretch it out. Sure, all of these things have existed beforehand, but it's getting much, much worse. Uh, these observations and many others make me one of those crazy people who favors universal health care in the United States. I have friends and colleagues who are very disturbed by many of the implications of universal health care. Uh, many of these concerns are very legitimate, such as will the government exert too much control over the physician-patient relationship? Will health care be rationed even more irrationally? The one argument which I find carries very little weight is that of moral hazard. Many of my more conservative and libertarian colleagues and friends feel that providing aid and comfort to those in financial trouble somehow is unfair to those of us who are working hard, quote-unquote, and creates a disincentive for people to get out there and find a job, work hard, or whatever. I find this view to be disturbingly punitive and also disturbingly short-sighted. Right now, we are all paying for the health care of those who cannot afford it. Every time somebody shows up in an emergency department without insurance, we treat them, we don't turn them away, but the hospital eats the bill and eventually passes those costs on to the rest of us. Also, bringing the general health of the population down affects us all. I see many patients who have chronic illnesses which they have not been able to care for properly, and these people end up on disability and on the government dole. Of course, there are problems when government gets deeply involved with things like health care, but the government's already deeply involved. Medicare is the single largest health insurer in the country. You know, I actually think that people underestimate the powerful effect of hope and hopelessness. When I say this has been a horrible winter, I really mean it. I mean that my patients, my friends, my colleagues have all been miserable. I mean that my patients have been coming into my office in tears, terribly depressed, sometimes suicidal. 
they have become fundamentally hopeless when people speak out against the soaring rhetoric of the president and his vague platitudes about hope. I think that they're forgetting to look at the fact that these platitudes about hope, when someone is struggling to stay housed and fed, when their unemployment insurance has run out, when their health insurance has run out, when they've lost all hope, sometimes even hearing this sort of hopeful rhetoric can make a difference in helping them to continue until such a time that they can pull out of their personal crisis. Does that mean that I think President Obama can heal with his words? Well, I guess that is what I'm saying to a certain extent, but that sounds pretty hokey. But enough about politics, because I really hate politics. There was a very interesting article in the New England Journal of Medicine last week. It compared several different weight loss diets, and what it did was it divided these diets into several different types. They looked at the various macronutrients, such as fats, carbohydrates, etc., and each diet had a different proportion of fats to proteins to carbohydrates based on the idea of some of the fad diets out there. As just about everyone is aware, there are diets that say you should eat anything except carbohydrates and some that say you should eat anything except meats. And There's never really been any data to support any of this. So the journal article looked at all these various diets and what they found was that there was only one unifying factor in weight loss, and that was people who eat fewer calories lose more weight. This seems blindingly obvious, but it is good to have the data to back it up. Just about everybody knows how difficult it can be to lose weight, and every physician has patients who say to them, hey doc, I'm not eating anything, how come I'm still gaining weight? The answer is pretty simple physics. It is impossible to gain weight without eating, and Whatever you're eating is obviously too much for you since you're gaining weight. I like to remind my patients that if they're not uncomfortably hungry, chances are they're not going to lose any weight. But I find it very frustrating in these difficult economic times, all the weight loss charlatans out there who are trying to remove people's money from their pockets. Most weight loss scams, and that's what most of these little weight loss programs are, is scams, tell people something simple like give us a few hundred dollars and we will guarantee that you will lose weight. Well, almost any program can help you lose weight. Weight Watchers tends to be one of the most effective because it's basically calorie counting. You reduce the amount of intake. But people who want to lose weight are pretty desperate. Like anybody struggling with a seemingly insoluble problem like smokers or drinkers or people with serious diseases, people who are overweight have usually tried many times to lose that weight and have failed. They're hoping that somebody out there has discovered the secret. I have good news and bad news. There is no secret. That's um, both the good news and the bad news. The simple fact is that eating less causes you to lose weight and eating more causes you to gain weight. And it is very difficult to lose weight. But should you even consider losing weight? Uh, the answer is complicated. People with a significantly elevated body mass index are at higher risk for premature death. They're at higher risk for various cancers. It is a risk factor in developing disease and in dying early. Still, like smoking or other very difficult 
poor health behaviors, obesity is a very difficult nut to crack. There are people out there who will tell you that the health risks of obesity are overrated, and I can tell you right now they're wrong. Part of the problem is that there are societal factors that complicate this discussion. The whole idea of body image is a very difficult confounding factor. It's certainly true that in our society we have somewhat bizarre expectations about how people should look, especially about how young women should look. Now there's a lot of people out there who would like to blame various eating disorders on this fact, but as someone who's treated a lot of patients with eating disorders, it is my considered opinion that eating disorders are much more complex than societal influences on body image. Many people with eating disorders have a very, very difficult past that they are dealing with. And this tends to be the overriding factor in their unhealthy behaviors. It's very important to tease out the health effects of obesity from the unhealthy societal push to make people bizarrely thin. Both are unhealthy. We all know that this doesn't mean that there is something wrong about fat people. There is a so-called fat acceptance movement out there. And I think the one thing I can agree with them about is, yes, there are biases in the society against fat people. However, that doesn't mean being fat is healthy. It just means that it is not a moral failing. When we conflate issues like this, we are basically lying to people. When we tell them, for example that fat is beautiful, therefore there's no reason to lose weight, we're lying to them. Fat may be beautiful, but that doesn't mean it's healthy. Thin may be beautiful, but that doesn't mean overly thin is healthy. It is this type of ideology versus reality that we deal with when we're dealing with alternative medicine. As I said a little bit earlier, hope may have healing properties, but that doesn't mean it can be prescribed in place of, say, cholesterol-lowering medications. The health benefits of things such as meditation, hope, or other, shall we say, emotional interventions is much smaller than that of actual pharmacologic and procedural intervention. If someone is having a heart attack, it's very beneficial to calm them down. One, it has a therapeutic property in that the person feels better, and two, it may slow their heart rate and prevent some of the ongoing heart damage. However, if you do not open that artery and keep it open, the person will die. I think that this is one of the things that the Tom Harkins of the world don't understand. Yes, some of the so-called alternative practices may be beneficial, especially things that aren't totally out there, you know, practices like Yoga and meditation certainly cause some relaxation, but the health benefits of these types of practices are very, very small compared to the health benefits of, say, a statin drug in somebody with diabetes or heart disease. You know, often I'll have a patient who has, say, hypertension, and I'll tell them that it's time to start a medication. I look at them. They're not particularly overweight, they have a reasonably good diet, they're physically active, but they're still hypertensive because that's their genetics. They are predisposed to hypertension and they've developed it. At that point, when they've already 
change their lifestyle to make it as healthy as possible, it's time to start treating them with medications. Some patients find this very disturbing. What I try to remind them is the reason for doing this. All the wishful thinking in the world will not lower the blood pressure significantly. Chronic hypertension leads to strokes, it leads to heart attacks, it leads to kidney failure. If you weigh those against taking a medication every day, it would seem to most rational people that it's better to take the medication. The magnitude of the risk of not treating hypertension is very high. And I think that this misunderstanding of the magnitude of risks and benefits is one of the confounding factors in people who think about alternative practices. You know, there's a reason that scientists use statistics. We use statistics because the human mind interprets patterns in a way that doesn't always match reality. We forget to wear our lucky hat and fall in a puddle. From then on, we make sure to never forget our lucky hat. But this, of course, doesn't mean that the hat is truly lucky. Wishful thinking and inappropriate pattern recognition are very powerful cognitive factors in evaluating reality. When a United States senator in charge of health care issues doesn't seem to understand the basic fact that we cannot wish something into reality, we are in a little bit of trouble. We cannot wish that fat were healthy. We cannot wish that hypertension wouldn't cause harm. And we can't wish homeopathy into a real medical practice. Unfortunately, though, we can legislate all of these things, whether they're real or not. So, dear reader and dear listener, you have a mission. You must follow the news, you must pay attention to what your lawmakers are doing, and you must write them and tell them when you think that they are being idiots, although I probably wouldn't use that word. Not because it is inaccurate, but because it is impolitic. Well, it would appear that we've come to the end of another PalCast, and I think it would be wise to sign off. My daughter has interrupted me about three dozen times because she's excited for her day. You see, we are going to go to a Purim carnival. Purim is another one of those Jewish holidays that celebrates the Jews' escape from mass murder, in this particular case at the hand of the Persians. And if you've never had the pleasure of having a poppy seed hamantash, this is the time to find a local Jewish bakery and go and get one. Thanks for listening, and please tune in next time to the Palcast from the White Coat Underground.